0: Welcome to the Desert Life Church Podcast. We're so excited you've tuned in to hear our weekend message. From wherever you are listening, we hope you're inspired by this message. Are you doing okay? Let me hear everybody. Good. You're going to have to talk back to your friend Ben this morning. Uh, We are ready for God's Word. Who just loves God's Word? Well, if you don't, hopefully you will uh, a little bit later on by the time we're done. If you and I haven't met before, Ben is my name. It's my joy to be the lead pastor of this church. And uh, that lady you were listening to before doing the MC spot was my ravishing wife, Danielle. We call her the fox around here. So if you saw me taking photos of her, it's because I was watching her going, gee, your hair looks good today, Danielle. And I uh, wasn't stalking her. I just wanted to capture that on, on moment, like short hair don't care type thing. So that was good. Who's ready for God's word? Why don't we pray and open our hearts this morning, shall we? Our Father, thank you because we get to come in the freedom of your love and in the freedom of your name and encounter you and hear from you and experience what you're saying. Not just hear words or even read words from a page, but actually our souls get to breathe in what you're doing. Lord, church history shows us. Our own testimony shows us. The pages of scripture show us. That when your word goes forth, it calls things into being that did not exist before. You're the one that said, Into the darkness, let there be light, and suddenly there was light. And Lord, in our lives today, no matter what darkness we have, we pray, Would you speak your light over our lives, over our souls, over our hearts, over our minds this morning? And call new things into being. Raise us up more. Heal our lives, heal our bodies, heal our minds. Repair our souls. Lord, help us follow you. Help us serve you. Help us know you. Let every one of us leave today closer to you, Jesus. Having heard your call to follow you and let us follow close. Even those of us who feel we have barriers in our lives, insurmountable walls, fences, hurdles, pitfalls. Lord, help us get past them in the power of your spirit today and let your word speak a new word into our lives that invigorates us and gives us life. For those of us who are feeling discouraged, isolated, downcast, defeated, worried, anxious, We pray today, Father, that the light of your word would dawn through all the clouds that surround our heads sometimes, and that we would leave this place walking in the light of your word in a fresh way. We pray for those in our midst that have never said yes to the gospel before, that before today's over, they would sense your movement in their lives as you call them to follow you. Not adopting religion, but having their lives wrapped up in a transforming relationship. We pray today that you would move in our midst in Jesus' name. And Everybody said, amen. amen. Give God a hand clap of praise as you take your seats today. Awesome. Well, if you've just joined us or you haven't been around for a little while, you could get on our podcast, which you can do on Spotify, you can do on your favourite podcast app, or you can go to our church website and download or stream the messages that uh, formulate the series that we are in the midst of. And we're in a series strolling, having a nice, languid, slow stroll through three chapters of Scripture. And they are Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 9, and Matthew chapter 10. We're in kind of a big middle chunk of Matthew chapter 9, which is good because it's the middle of all of the series actually, not that we're necessarily going to take the same number of weeks to get through the rest of the series but we're at the high point because where we find ourselves today is a story that has been lovingly placed by Matthew in Matthew's gospel which is the story of how Matthew finds Jesus. Actually the better way to say it is Jesus finds Matthew. And so if you're new or visiting with us, just sit back and relax. It doesn't matter if you've missed out on the previous bits of the series. You can just sort of ride along with us today, and it's okay. You don't have to know a whole lot of the background stuff, but it would help if you did. So maybe afterwards, if you're really, really bored or suffer insomnia or something, just get our podcast. I've heard that my preaching can put anybody to sleep, and uh, that's pretty cool, huh? Okay, well, we'll move on then, since you're not responding to that. The title of today's message is called The Resurrection of Matthew. Matthew arranges his gospel lovingly inspired by the Holy Spirit and he's put his story not at the beginning of the gospel, it's not the first thing he tells us, not at the end of the gospel, it's not the last thing he tells us, he's put it right in the middle of this chunk, Matthew 8, 9 and 10, something that we've discovered as we've processed is one literary unit throughout scripture. That means that if Matthew was punctuating the way ancient world people punctuated, he wouldn't put a chapter and a verse heading, he would put use literary devices to arrange the text. And you know, it's a bit boring, so you can go find that out on the podcast later on. But uh, we find ourselves today, moving on from the start of Matthew chapter nine, the first sort of 11 verses of Matthew is the story of the healing of a crippled man who is brought to Jesus on a mat. And we talked about that story last week. And what we noted was that the man had no power to bring himself to Jesus and he had no power to raise himself up off a mat, but actually he was brought to Jesus, carried against his own capacity to do anything to change his own life, and that Jesus spoke a word over him. And the word sounded like this, be of good cheer. Your sins are sent away and get up and walk. And because of the life-giving word that Jesus spoke over him, strength entered his body. The capacity to do something that he could never do before entered his body and he was, in fact, raised up from his mat. Now you need to know that the very next story Jesus tells you is the one that we are uh, sorry Matthew tells you is the one that we are about to read but it's no accident that the cripple man on the mat is the story you read before you read the story of the cripple man at the tax collector's booth It's actually the same story told twice The cripple man in Matthew chapter 9 verse 1 is about to be followed by the cripple man called Matthew the tax collector who himself is paralyzed but receives a life-changing, life-giving resurrection word from Jesus. Why don't we read Matthew's account of the way his life was changed through an encounter with Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew chapter 9, we'll start, let's say, in uh, verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 9 of Matthew. And it says this, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Everybody say, tax collector. Tax collector. I'm not going to labour it today, but in other parts of this series, we've talked extensively about the social stigma around being a tax collector. They were the bottom of the bottom. Actually, William Barclay, that great Bible commentator, he makes the observation that tax collectors were seen as so low that any money on their person could be confiscated by other Jewish authorities because it was considered to be 100% stolen property. (laughs) How about that? How many people love tax time? How many people would love those laws here as well? Well, you have to go back in time to get them. But uh, it was considered stolen property. Tax collectors were so low that if they were witness to a crime, like a murder or something like that, their testimony would not be valid in a court of law because they were considered to be such extreme sinners. The Jewish people wouldn't receive the testimony of a Gentile, a woman, or a tax collector in that order. A tax collector was even worse than being a woman to the first century world. Now, girls, we love you, but in the first century world, you had it rough, trust me. But tax collectors... They were even lower than what women were considered to be back in those days, which was pretty bad, by the way. (laughs) We love you today, though, so don't worry. He's a tax collector, the lowest of the low. Okay, now let me just find my place again because the fans are moving. Jesus comes up to Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Pause, dramatic music, tell us what's going on here. Can you believe it? Can you wait? If you're a first century reader, remember, you weren't reading the pages. You were heard this read aloud. It was an oral culture. Most people couldn't read, so only a few people in the church could read. So the whole church would gather and this would be read to them. Oh, Jesus turns up to a tax collector's booth. What's going to happen? Let's pause for the thunder and lightning. Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. Come on, who wants to sing it? (laughs) Galileo. Okay, we're going to move on. You guys, just smile a bit in church. It's okay. If you can't be happy here, I know we sung Queen, but please. What's going to happen? Well, if you're a first century reader, you would be poised in amazement of what's about to happen. Is there going to be smiting? Is there going to be judgment? But no, listen to this. You get a two-word sentence from Jesus. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. This is where in the first century world, everybody would breathe a sigh of shock. <gasps> in fact, why don't we do that now? Jesus preached him a two-word, sent, a pre- two-word sermon. I know you'd love a preacher like that in this church. <laughs> oh, guys. He says, follow me. And everybody went, you have to understand, friends, that when we read it, we are so encultured in the school of religion that we understand the end of the story before the beginning. But as these things unfold, these events are shocking. And you will see because these events become the source of a major, region why, major reason why Jesus is persecuted by the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious elites of the day. Because they cannot bear the scandal of the way that Jesus is conducting his ministry. Jesus is not following any of the rules rules jesus is not socially acceptable jesus is not theologically acceptable to them and he's certainly not religiously acceptable so this is a shocking tale It's scandalous and actually the next literary section of Matthew will be a whole section from Matthew chapter 11 onwards that deals with this word scandal which would be translated for you as the word offence and it comes up over and over again in that section and it's like it's saying this, that the authority of Jesus in this section, the way Jesus calls people and changes their lives through loving gracious acts of healing leads to huge offence for people because they can't bear that one thing about Jesus. And by the way, that happens in our church too. And it happened throughout history of the church too. That one thing that religion does, if you've been raised in the school of religion, is it creates massive offence in your soul when you see people who are sinful confronted with the grace of God. Even in your own soul. You might want grace for yourself, but man, it's hard to give it to other people sometimes, isn't it? And Matthew is helping us, he's giving us theological physiotherapy. Try to say that five times fast. Theological physiotherapy, (laughs) physiotherapy, he's helping us recover. Follow me, Jesus said, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many, everybody say it, many tax collectors. Look, one tax collector in the story near Jesus is bad enough, but now we're getting a story where there's many tax collectors, so if you were going to breathe a shock of relief when Jesus says to Matthew, "Follow me once," if you're going to breathe a shock of a sigh of shock now, go ahead and have a stroke or something like that, OK? Have a cardiac arrest, faint, do whatever. Just just like throw up. There's buckets coming around now with the Hope team. Um, because this, you have to understand from the first century world, this narrative now becomes an intolerable narrative. You and I have been raised religiously, so we just go, oh, yeah, it's cool, Jesus and the tax collectors. No one in the first century world reading this story would have thought this was cool. And you see by the response of those around about, okay, where are we? I'm getting into my sermon before I'm getting into my sermon. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and and sinners, okay, if it wasn't bad enough, and tax collectors weren't bad enough. Now, another group generically called sinners. Come on. I want everybody to stand up on their feet for a second. Those of you who are not mobility challenged, okay? Here's what I'm going to do. You have to understand what's going on. So I'm going to read this passage to you again, and then you're going to symbolically faint into your chair to recreate the shock that Matthew is constructing in this narrative okay remember inspired by the Holy Spirit Matthew is writing with what we call literary artistry that doesn't mean it's not true it means he's labored he could have told you this story any way he wanted he's told you this story for maximum impact Matthew is the Martin Scorsese of the ancient world he's like doing an epic narrative here does that make sense And if you read it with a first century lens and the more you study it, the more shocking you find it, then you have to understand the only appropriate response is shock, awe and fainting. So are you ready? A symbolic fainting. At this point, I should note, it's only symbolic, so don't do yourself or the person around you a head injury. Is that okay? Where are we? While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. (laughs) Look at that, revival in the land. Now I'm going, to t- I'm going to tweet later on, church was so powerful this morning. I just read out God's word and everybody fell over. John Wesley would be proud. Tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, who did they ask? <laughs> this is what I've found, that when religious people are offended by religion, they never go to the person they're offended with, they always go to those around them. They don't talk to you, they talk about you. And if you're going to be talked about, let me tell you, this is a good thing to be talked about. If I'm going to be criticized, if I'm going to be gossiped about, I want to be gossiped about because I'm a little bit the same as Jesus, not for other things that you could probably gossip about in my life. They came to his disciples and they said, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, see, they said it with an earshot of Jesus. Jesus is aware. Jesus is perceiving what's going on. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn. Okay, I'll need you to breathe another sigh of shock when you hear this. Go and learn. Okay, see, because we're modern people, we don't get this. But when you see the phrase, go and learn, written by a first century rabbi, you have to understand... The only way to equate that phrase, it is a special phrase, it is a technical phrase. The only way to equate that phrase would be that if I sent you back to, remember year one or prep, whenever you first started having structured learning to read lessons in school? Remember that? And you'd learn A is for, B is for Brontosaurus Rex, that's right. Well, I was a gifted child, so that's how we did it in our house. A is for esophagus. doesn't start with A, does it? I'm a theologian, not a doctor. We've got plenty of pe- medical people in the church. They will help you. They will help you. C is for? Okay. What was that one? Oh, nice. Since we're distracted. How are you, Jim? It's great to see you, mate. Back from the US. Been about a year or two since we've seen you, hey? Welcome back, but you haven't lost your Dodgers jersey, so that's good. Okay, now. A is for apple, B is for ball. These are the, what we call the fundamentals of literacy, okay? So that is, if you, being an educated human who already was educated in the English language, let's say, or another language group, and you came and you said, I'm going to go to university to a, uh, a university lecture, and let's say you've already got a degree, so I said, it's going to be a master's level lecture or something in higher education, and you, with all of your educational background material, turn up to the class, and you turn up to the class, and I'm the lecturer for starters, the best thing for you to do is pack up and leave immediately for your own mental health sake. But apart from that, let's say that you didn't do that, then what would happen is I would put up on the PowerPoint screen, A is for apple, B is for ball, C is for cat, D is for diplodocus, that's right. Okay, and you would go, what the heck does this guy think he's doing? I'm here for deep teaching, man. I'm here for higher education. This guy's giving me primary school stuff, but I'm here for, like, the good stuff. Does that make sense? You would be reasonably offended because what would happen is I would be treating you as an illiterate beginner rather than recognizing where you're at. Does that make sense? In the first century world, when a rabbi said to one of their students, go and learn, that was their initiating phrase. That was the beginning of their lessons. That was the ABCs of Bible training, the ABCs of biblical studies, the ABCs of rabbinic teaching. You understand? It's not just like a phrase saying, oh, you should go check out a cool fact, fun fact. It's a technical phrase. And Matthew's put it in. This is what Jesus says to them. If you guys are offended because of what's going on here... Then I'm sorry, no matter how advanced your religious education is, no matter how many qualifications you have, no matter how well-schooled you are in the things of Torah or the things of Scripture, no matter how advanced in the things of God you seem to feel you are, you are back to A as for apple, B is to ball, my friends. See what's happening? To the religious people, this is incredibly insulting. It's like Jesus is saying, sorry guys, everything you've ever learnt before counts for nothing. Immediately go back to prep school immediately go back to, I think we call it transition in the, in, in, in the Northern Territory, all the trannies running around schools. When you're from Queensland, that's a very weird statement. <laughs> Transitionals. And it's like saying to you when you've got your master's degree, go back to transition, go back to year one. And that's what Jesus says. But go and learn. And what is he saying? What is he saying the fundamentals of our faith are? What is he saying? Before you learn anything else, you can never progress. You can't even read stuff in God until you've done A's for apple, B's for ball. And what is it? Listen to what he says. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Wonderful quote from the book of Hosea, chapter 6. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. I want you to think about that. What are the fundamentals of the Christian life? What are the ABCs of the Christian life? What is the thing that you can never move on unless you understand that and then it underpins everything you do? See, if you never learn A is for apple, B is for ball, doesn't matter how far you go, you can never become a reader, can you? And Jesus is saying, unless you understand this significant central point of this narrative, you can never understand what the Christian faith is all about. Oh, I think we could just sit there for a second, couldn't we, and just let that radical thought transform us a little bit. I have to say, I've been following Jesus for nearly 20 years, and over 20 years, I still have to come back and remind myself that this is the ABCs of the Christian faith. And actually, some people think, oh, well, you know, that's the ABCs, but I want to progress to, like, the DEFs. But, you know, you can never get to the DEFs if you don't do the ABCs. They underpin everything. Fundamental literacy skills in the English language fundamental literary skills in the language of God. Mercy, not sacrifice. I want you to think about that. Hosea said that to the people of Israel because they were doing so well with the sacrificial system and following the rules and templing and all this sort of stuff. And Hosea comes on and goes, you guys are totally missing it because the mercy of God is not being reflected. All the religious rules were being followed, but the covenant around how people love and reach out to each other was not. And Jesus comes and says, actually, my message to the Jewish people of the first century world you're exactly the same as the people in Hosea's time. All the religious boxes ticked but don't understand the mercy of God. And when you don't understand the mercy of God, all the religious boxes being ticked mean nothing. How about that? Shocking, huh? You know, we just need to sort of sometimes sit in the way that Jesus teaches us and understand the tone of voice Jesus used to people, his accent, his posture, the way he spoke and reached out to people. And it's easy to forget because we sometimes forget that we're in a relationship with Christ and we instead have our posture shifted by religion and rules. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, we're going to unpack a couple of things about this text in our remaining only few moments together. What I'm going to tell you in this next little moment could easily offend you, could easily shock you, and it could easily scare the pants off you. Now, if it does any of those three things, you're probably correctly understanding what I'm about to say, okay? Okay. I'm going to ask the team to put up on the screen um, the mind map, because I want to explain to you, before we get into what we're going to say, I want to explain to you why we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about. So here's Uncle Ben's sermon notes. Um, And I want to explain to you the process... Of how you study the scriptures, but I'm going to give you like a two minute version of it instead of the one year long, three hours, five times a week lectures that I used to do in Brisbane. Does that make sense? So it's vastly reduced, okay? So when you study a passage of scripture, here's the first thing you do, and you'll see it on the top right hand side of the screen. You see a whiteboard photograph of a diagram that tells you what Matthew is all about. I think that's what it says. What is Matthew about? And that is a diagram representation of every chunk of scripture within the gospel of Matthew. In the middle, you'll see a bunch of green boxes. And the green boxes are the five central um, uh, chunks that Matthew has divided his gospel into. The five central chunks that result in a collection of stories. The chunk we're looking at is the second from the top, which is Matthew chapter 8, chapter 9 and chapter 10. And they go somewhere with a point. And you can see that is sort of smack dab in the middle of Matthew's gospel okay so first of all that's called locating something in its literary context i know you're going to be fascinated about this don't fall asleep just yet so what we do is first of all when we study this passage we locate it in its literary context we say where does this happen in the whole rest of the book and how does it relate to the rest of the book it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle by looking at the photograph on the front of the box are you with me sometimes what we do is we read the bible without looking at the photo on the front of the box And if you've ever tried to do a jigsaw puzzle that way, it just takes a whole lot longer, doesn't it? And it's very, very difficult to do. So you look at the big picture, then you understand how the pieces fit together. That's how you study a book of the Bible. And then when you study a book of the Bible, you do that with all the other bits of the Bible as well. That's the first thing you do. The second thing you do is you study the background of the book to help you understand what that's saying. And to do that, you consult secondary sources called Bible commentaries, Bible dictionaries. I've given you six screenshots of uh, six different Bible commentaries there. I've probably read about 60 when it comes to Matthew, but the most important ones that you'd find helpful are those ones there because you don't need to be able to read Greek or Hebrew to use those particular sources so you consult them and you get the introductory material you get them to point out a couple of big picture items for you okay the third thing that you do is then you read the particular scripture verse that you're actually talking about okay so this would be on the back of the fact that when you've done your big whiteboard thing there what is Matthew all about you read the book through as many times as close to one sitting as you probably can I would say six or seven times I'd normally do it about six times Um, just sit there and cover to cover read the entire book before you even pick out one verse to think about does that make sense to make sure you're familiar with the land it's kind of like you know when you go um when you travel somewhere before you walk down the street you read all the tour guides look at the maps and read the overview of the city before you walk down the street does that make sense you haven't ever done that before you should definitely do that before that is how you find the lego store in copenhagen on a bicycle my friends but anyway okay so the next thing you do is you choose your passage and the best way for you to choose your passage uh well it'll choose itself if you're studying it systematically is then you read it through in english who loves being able to read things in a language they understand okay this is the best era to study the bible in your entire life because most languages spoken in a room like this your primary thought language your heart language you would find a scripture translation probably in that language that's pretty good so i've chosen the niv but there's so many good english ones it's just whichever one you understand most and that you find most interesting that's the one you should read okay so that's the blue text on the very left hand side okay so i'd read that through in a few times in english and just get myself acquainted and situated with what's going on in the text then up the top you'll see a squiggly red line and it says in very bad chicken scratch writing because I'm a left-hander. It says Greek. You could find the Greek, um, Greek New Testament. These days you can find it online. What I put up there are screenshots of the whole paragraph we're reading in its original Greek language and I've uh, taken the screenshot from the Bible. Dot, uh, sorry, biblehub.org website. Now, if you ever wanted to do language studies and you wanted to find out what does that really say in the original Greek language or something like that, these days you don't have to do what I did and go to uni and study the language originally and like drive yourself crazy trying to learn an ancient language that no one speaks anymore and find out the rules of grammar and all this sort of stuff. You can go to biblehub.org and go to the interlinear translation and it'll give you the Greek, it'll give you the English, it'll even give you the rules of grammar and the meanings and the definitions and all that sort of stuff. I could have saved myself four years of my life if I had just gone to biblehub.org but the problem is when I went to Bible college the internet wasn't even a thing yet and all the teenagers in the room can you believe that we only had paper books back then it was crazy I went to Bible college my library number was number 41 and that is course is a very very significant number if you've ever seen the film get out more people Ben-Hur That was his slave number when he was rowing on the Roman galleys. And so when I walked in to the library, the librarian would say, ''Hello, number 41.'' And I would continue my study rowing my slave ship, studying away. It was really good. Okay, so then you read it in the Greek and what you do is you have to understand that when you read in English or whatever your main language is, if it's not English, when you read it, what you're reading is a translation. You're reading something that's been taken from one language into another. If you speak more than one language, you know it's an incredibly difficult task translating something. Usually there's a lot of explanation, there's a lot of footnotes, there's a lot of subtext because it's never just as simple as choosing one word to substitute for another word. Does that make sense? Because every word has a story and a taste and a feel what we call in linguistics a shade of meaning and the shade of meaning can also be determined by context you can use one word three or four different ways can't you and the context of that usage determines what the word means and so of course it's a very difficult job so sometimes when I teach or preach that's why you'll often hear me go back to the Greek not because it's like secret knowledge you can't have but because it's like you know when we read the Bible in English it's good But when you go back to its original language and appreciate the shades of meaning, it enlightens how you taste and feel and understand that, like any translation of any particular language as well. Okay, so you go back to the original language. Now what you do is you're making sure that your comparison between the, Greek te- uh, the original language and the English language that you're reading from, that you've noted what things stand out to you. Then you just make a list and you'll see all over this page a bunch of statements that are highlighted, a bunch of weird arrows going all over the place and all that sort of stuff. And they are the observations that stand out to you once you've done your... Your analysis of the text, if you like. Sounds really boring. Once you've thunk about it for a while, maybe just say it that way, okay? So you think about it. What's going on here? What is significant? If I was reading this as a first century person knowing about the sociology and the culture of the day and the history and the way they thought, the way they used language, what were their rules, what were their social norms and mores, when you know all that stuff which you get from the study resources then you understand, wow, this is really shocking tale compared to first century world. And sometimes when you and I read the Bible, it's like, can I just be blasphemous for a second? It can be Tasting a little bit bland and boring, can't it? Are you allowed to admit that in church? Turn the person next to you and go. I can't believe the pastor said that. <laughs> no, but the truth is, as a pastor, I'm, I live in the realms of reality, and a lot of times I hear this from people. I would read the Bible more, but it's just I just can't. I don't understand what's going on. I fall asleep. I just, I can't be motivated to do it. But you can read your fascinating things. You can, you can memorize the uh, some lyrics to your favorite song. So your brain actually has the capacity to do stuff. Well, why can't we do it when it comes to Scripture? And a lot of the time, that is because we don't quite really understand what's going on. And when we don't understand what's going on, we just kind of fog it all out. So we just read big chunks of it without getting much out of it, don't we? And that's okay. So if that happens to you, my recommendation would be um, then study a little bit and go for quality over quantity. Don't try and read massive chunks. Try and study one chunk. Study something. And then digest that. And you will find if you study it, just take a little bit and study it. And as the insight that comes through meditation and prayer and study, all those things are rolled in together, okay? So you, you do your textual observations, if I'm doing this for a sermon, then what I do is at this point, and this has already taken me probably 12 or 14 hours to do all this sort of stuff, if I'm doing this for a sermon, I will then take six to eight hours and pray and meditate on it. And that means turning off the phone, turning off Facebook, well, not always turning off Facebook, but hopefully sometimes, um, and shutting everything out, telling people don't talk to me for a minute, I just need to lock in, and then pray about this, and pray about our church, and say, Jesus, what are you actually saying to us? What are you saying to me? how are you changing me through this? And if you're changing me through this, I'm a shepherd of a church, so how are you changing our church? Where are we going because of what you're saying? And sometimes you've just got to tune out the rest of the world. And so maybe it is that your Bible study and Bible reading life lacks punch, lacks revelation, lacks energization. And one of the reasons could be because if you only read it, or even if you only studied it, then it's just like, you know, I'm like an archaeologist just doing something, um, you know, just digging up old artefacts from the past. No, no, there's a relational component that's very important. And the relational component is that the best way to read scripture is once we've got our head around some, some bits of it, get on your knees. and Say to Jesus, okay, Jesus, breathe this into my life. And that process is spelled T-I-M-E. It's a process of time. And I would find that a lot of people, one of the reasons why, why we're not being transformed by God's word is either when we read it, we just don't have a clue what's going on. That's okay. It's no criticism or judgment. They just meditate and study more. Okay? I'm, I'm giving you this so you can see a process. It's not the only one. There are far more simpler ones done by people who are sane. Um, and you could just use some study tools. But then the bit where you pray and meditate on it and let Jesus breathe into you. You know, so when we do a sermon, and uh, you know, I usually preach like 40 or 50 minutes or something like that, three hours if I can, um, then, then what happens is I'm going to give you 40 or 50 minutes of something that I've been boiling over, usually for three weeks, I will take three weeks to boil over this stuff and at any given time, know ahead of time all the different things that we're working on together and all the teaching sessions and sermons and all this sort of stuff. And so then what happens to happen, this is the painful, um, terrible injustice of preaching, is you have to find a way to boil all that process down, which any bit of that could be a sermon on its own and go, right, I'm only going to get like a very small window to chat about this with the church. That's why we do series because what we try to do is take a bit of that and layer it over time. Does that make sense? But even if we didn't do that, you could do that in your own time and you could do that in your spare time and you could begin. even simply, remember, quantity, uh, sorry, quality is better than quantity. So just study a little bit is better than reading ignorantly a whole bunch. Does that make sense? Okay. So then we would do that and we would come back and we would work out, what the heck are we going to say? Once you've formulated and analysed and prayed... Then you go back to secondary sources, which are like these Bible commentaries or all sorts of other things, journal articles, magazines, Bible dictionaries, all sorts of stuff. You go back to it and you say, do the observations I've made and conclusions I've come to, do they match what educated people in the past, the Christian community throughout history? Does it match the types of conclusions they've said? So here's the thing about biblical studies. It's very rare you're going to come up with a new thing that nobody's ever seen before, okay? When you do that, that spells huge danger, okay? Okay? It spells huge danger. You've heard the proverbs. The proverb, there's nothing new under the sun. It's actually an ecclesiastic statement, but anyway, it's proverbial. Um, there's nothing new under so, the sun. That's actually the facts when it comes to biblical studies. For the most part, you're not going to come up with a unique revelation that the universe has never heard before. Okay? And now when I preach and teach, a lot of times people will come up to me and say, man, I've never heard of that before. But I just have to let you know, that's not because I'm saying something no one's ever said before. But I might just be saying something that you've never read before or something like that. Does that make sense? Okay. That's one of my jobs as a teacher of the Word and as a preacher of the Word is to have a large appetite to do this so that our church can go on a common journey together. Does that make sense? And that's sort of why I've studied it and then why I get to preach it is because you might not have the time and opportunity to do all this sort of stuff, but our community gets to go on a common journey together. Does that make sense? It's the call of the teacher and the preacher is to do this and feed the church. What Jesus said to Peter, when he said to him, Peter, feed my sheep. That's what he's talking about. That shepherding, pastoral, teaching role. Okay, we're going to move on. So I'm saying this because I'm about to make a couple of radical statements to you and you're going to say, I can't believe it. Where did you get this from? And I've just told you. So what that would mean is you could replicate my exact process and you would be forced, if you're an integrous and humble student of God's Word, to formulate the same conclusions. Does that make sense? Not because I was making you, but because you could replicate the process, do the research in the background and find if you read this with Matthew's glasses on, you would see the point he's trying to make. Does that make sense? Okay, we've only got a few minutes to go. So everybody say, ready, set, go. Okay, all right, let me make a couple of observations for you. First of all, this sermon is called The Resurrection of Matthew because when Matthew tells you this story, it is in fact a resurrection story he is telling you. Everybody say, resurrection. Okay, it's called a resurrection story because in the Greek, and it loses some of the obviousness of it in the translation, but in the Greek, when Jesus goes and talks to Matthew, he says to Matthew his two-word sermon, follow me, And then it says, and Matthew got up and followed him. In the Greek, the way Matthew tells you the story, he tells it to you a little bit different. He says, Jesus came to him and said, follow me. Using the present active tense, which meant, it really means something like this. Start following me. Begin following me. Begin being always following me. See, if we translate it like that in an English translation, it doesn't make much sense. You have to dwell on it to get, what? That doesn't make sense because we don't talk like that. But in the Greek, you have a way of writing a statement. And what it means, it doesn't just mean, yo, come for a chat or something like that. It means, start and continue something that you've never done before. Start it and always keep doing it. So that's what Jesus means when he says to Matthew, follow me. He's calling Matthew into a brand new type of life. He's calling him into a new existence. He's calling him into a new experience. Remember, Genesis 1, when God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. This is the fundamental precept that begins all of Scripture is that when God says something, the Holy Spirit comes and hovers over what God is speaking over and brings the spoken word into reality through the miraculous activity of God. Creation out of nothing, ex nihilo. That when God says it, the Holy Spirit makes it happen. Who makes it happen? Okay. So Jesus comes to the dark chaos of Matthew's life and he doesn't say, let there be light. He says, let there be followership. And then guess what happens? there's followership. Let me ask you a question. Is it because Matthew's sitting there and he has cause to reflect on his own life and his sinful state as a tax collector at the bottom of the social order? Is it because Matthew thinks, you know, that's actually a reasonable suggestion, I should really change my life and decides because he has a wise insight about life, I'm going to start following Jesus? Is that what happens? Not according to Matthew because Matthew reveals something to you in the way he's written this story. So Jesus comes and says, be following me, be always following me and then it says, and then in the Greek text, it says, and then having arose, he followed him. Isn't that awesome? I want you to think about that. Now, arose doesn't just mean I was sitting, now I'm standing. Okay? In, um, in, in my NIV, the way it's been translated, it says, and immediately Matthew got up and followed him. And it's still true, that's what happened. Matthew gets up and followed him. But there's layers and shades of meaning in the Greek of this text because what Matthew says is Matthew uses the word for resurrection reserved in Matthew's gospel for times when Jesus raises people up and heals them and we've talked about that before or other times reserved for Jesus predicting that he would rise from the dead or the gospel account that he had risen from the dead okay and so this word arose is not just meaning getting up it is a resurrection word what it means is resurrection okay do you remember the story of Lazarus at the tomb Okay, Lazarus arose in response to the word. Jesus stood at the tomb and said, Lazarus, okay, did Lazarus get himself out of the tomb? Well, he was dead, so he didn't have any power to get himself out of the tomb, did he? Okay, but Jesus stood at the doorway of his tomb and said, Lazarus, come out, spoke his word, the hovering Holy Spirit that always does what God's word says created something in that moment called life in Lazarus's body so Lazarus did what he did not because he was lying in the tomb going well I can hear Jesus telling me what to do it would be wise to obey Jesus he was dead he had no obedience wasn't even a question life or death was the question does that make sense it was about Lazarus doing what he was told is it was about Lazarus being transformed by what he was told does that make sense and so Matthew is having a Lazarus moment and that's the way Matthew records for you the story Jesus came and said, be following me. The Genesis 1 word hovers over Matthew's life. The Holy Spirit hovers over Matthew's life. And it raises Matthew from the dead. And if you were Matthew, that's certainly what you experienced. I used to be dead, now I'm alive. And it raises him up. And then it says, having arisen, having been raised up, he followed Jesus. What raised up Matthew? Matthew's own volition? Matthew's sense of guilt? Matthew's sense of shame? Matthew's sense of religion, oh, an important teacher is telling me to do something, I should do what he says in case I get in trouble. Not according to Matthew. Matthew was a dead man that Jesus came and spoke over and turned that dead man into an alive man. That's the story Matthew's telling you. That's why this is called the resurrection of Matthew. And the resurrection of Matthew turns into the resurrection of a bunch of other people as we go along in the story as well. The resurrection of Matthew. Okay, that's the first one. What else are we going to talk about in our little bit of time together? Let me just see are you okay? Turn the person next to you and say, wake up! It's nearly done. Now this is important because the resurrection of Matthew is a retelling of the story that we read before, which is about the crippled man who had no power to get himself up off his mat, but Jesus came and said, I tell you, take up your mat and walk, and boom, power came into his life, and he was raised up, and he was able to get up off his mat and walk. Now theologians, and you could look at the writings of Craig L. Blomberg, I reckon if you're going to have, be a theologian you need a name like Craig L. Blomberg, and Cla- Craig L. Blomberg says, all of the miracle stories that lead up to this story are called paradigmatic healings, that's a cool word isn't it, use that to win Scrabble this week, paradigmatic healings, what it means is the healings are important because they happened, and he wants you to know they happen, but the healings are also an illustration, the healings are like a parable, Jesus going around healing a crippled person on a mat and then walking up to Matthew is Matthew's way of saying, just like he was crippled and healed by the word of Jesus, I was crippled and healed by the word of Jesus now you're a listener and you're listening to Matthew's gospel why is Matthew telling you this could it be because he wants you also to be raised up for the word of Jesus from things could it be because in our lives there's ways that we are crippled could it be because there's in our lives there's ways where we're just a little bit like that tax collector at the booth where we're just a little bit like the type of person that no one would expect to follow God And but when Jesus' word goes forth, it comes to us and it hovers over our lives and we're confronted with an opportunity to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, who says to us, be following Jesus, and we can let that resurrection word come into our lives and raise us up and create someone in me that can now follow Jesus. I get worried when I hear preaching of the gospel that's just like a slap across someone's face that essentially says, Stop being so stupid, follow Jesus. Because that is not how you see Jesus preach the gospel. And that is not how in the New Testament you understand a person responds to the gospel. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 2 if you would. Man, how long does it take to flick through a Bible when you're used to doing it in an app? okay? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul to the Ephesian church, reminding them what happened before they were followers of Jesus. As for you, plural, yous. If you're from Queensland, you say, as for yous, as for yous, guys. If you're from Central Australia, you translate it, as for you mob. You mob were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were, everybody say were, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That means the judgment of God. But because of his great love for us, everybody say but. but. Everywhere in the Bible, God always has the biggest and the best but. But because of his great love for us, everybody say love. No. What type of love? Great, love. great little bit of love. Great, love. great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy. What, what in mercy? Rich. rich. You understand the difference between rich and other states of being, do you not? Yeah. I've seen the car some of you drove in on. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's do a scale. This end is rich. What's this end? Okay. This end is? Okay. What's here? Like adequate? Survive? Poorer, poorer, poorest Samsung owners. That's me. Okay, good. Now, I'm a Samsung owner, so I can pay out on myself. It's okay. And I don't need a pay rise, so don't feel sorry for me. Okay, so God is not poor in mercy, and God is not adequate in mercy, and God does not just have enough mercy to get by. Paul says that God is rich in mercy. Okay, listen to what he's then saying. Oh, let me find my spot again. God who is rich in mercy, listen. Okay, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. What is a Christian? A Christian is a dead person that the loving, merciful grace of God came and stood at the doorway of their tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And then we were called out and we were more surprised than anybody because we didn't make a choice. We didn't go on a behaviour modification program. We found that we were called out of a dead life by a living Jesus. But I didn't do anything to deserve it. No, Paul says, you can't even brag about it because it is by grace. It's a gift. It is unmerited favor. You did nothing to make yourself deserve that call. The call came to you. And then God raised us. He resurrected us. And he enthroned us like kings and queens. And he seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus with him. Why? So that in the coming ages, that means throughout all the rest of eternal history, this age and the age to come, that God would always have the church as his exhibit A, Look at the incomparable riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. Look at the unimaginable wealth God has. Look at the indescribable, filthy lucre of God. I'm not going to tell you this story. I know a rich guy. He has an amazing house. You go in there and he loves to show you around the place. He lives on the Gold Coast at a very expensive real estate area. And he loves to show you all the fixtures and the fittings... And the platinum toilet seat and all sorts of crazy stuff. We're getting one in my office next week, it's good. (laughs) And he loves to show you, look around. He's got his flashy shed full of cars, Ferraris and Porsches. And recently he had a visit from the police. And the police were wearing body cam footage, which somebody leaked and is now all over the internet of the police following this guy through his house, looking at everything. Everything inquiring, searching his property. Turns out he had committed a crime. He's probably going to go to jail for it. But what this YouTube video is now famous for is not, oh, look, the inner workings of somebody who's getting arrested by the cops. It's now famous because everyone's going, man, check out how rich this guy is. Look at the tour of his house. (laughs) And this, this video has now become exhibit A, look how rich that guy is. Okay. Paul says, the church is exhibit A, look how rich God is. And the type of wealth God measures is, can you be in shock and awe at the grace and mercy of God? Could you be surprised by the grace and mercy of God? Could you be absolutely scandalised? You know, if you look at the comments on this YouTube video, some of them are like, oh, what a jerk, look how much stuff he has. Other people are like, "Wow, I wish I was that rich. And there's all scale of responses. And in a way, Paul is pointing to that scale of responses when he says that in the coming age, we would be exhibit A of the incomparable riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus that we would be shocked that we would go man I can't believe it look at that now have a look around at the church maybe just take a little peek this way now take a little peek this way and now don't worry because they won't they'll be doing the same thing as you so they won't know but now look behind you just take a quick glance over your shoulder like that okay if we knew each other's stories If we could see with the infinite, perfectly righteous and holy side of Jesus, the thing we would see that we don't see in a room like this, we would see everybody's brokenness. I'd see all your humanity and your brokenness and sin. I'd see every temptation, every challenge. Don't feel bad. You would see mine. I do not want you to see that. But Jesus would see it. And in fact, he's here today and he sees it and he saw it when he called you into life and sometimes we go along and we have what i call relationship drift relationship drift means you know when we're a new christian we're just overwhelmed by the grace of god and so thankful and we're just so close to jesus it's powerful it's just something we we get emotional about i sure do And then as time goes on, it's so possible for us to just drift from relationship into religiosity where it's about rules and regulations. And we start to pat ourselves on the back and tell ourselves we're doing pretty good. We can get a little bit judgmental of other people and be conscious of how how bad they're doing. Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Oh, look what's going on with that. And We start to compare and we feel pretty righteous and start to look at other people like maybe they're not as good and definitely not as good as us and definitely not as good as Jesus. And that's because we've drifted from Jesus. Think about this, because when Jesus came into your life, he had great mercy and compassion on you and did not reveal to you all in one sitting every way he would call you to change in the future. Isn't that true? Jesus had asked me to change things this week that he didn't ask me to change five years ago. And the Holy Spirit's convicted me of areas to grow in that I had no idea about 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, some of the things Jesus has done and said in me, if I'd have known back then, I wouldn't have even ever said yes to the gospel. I would have run a mile the other way. How about you? I even tried to, I reckon. But how do we get here? How do we get here? Well, Paul only has one explanation. We were dead, but now we're alive. How did Jesus end up with a follower like Matthew the tax collector? How did Matthew the tax collector end up as an author of sacred scripture I'll tell you how because he wants you to know the way he tells the story he was resurrected a living Jesus came and stood at the tomb of his tax collector's booth and said Matthew be following me from now on the next paragraph starts like this and it came to pass that he was reclining I'm going to talk about that in the next service the radical idea of Jesus reclining with sinners it's probably not what you think though and he says, and it came to pass. Egeneto, it says in the Greek. And it means this, and a new chapter began. And a new future was great. And something that had never existed before came into being. And the way Matthew writes it, I was dead, he raised me up, and then a new future started. What a great way to understand what Jesus does in our lives. Hey, Why don't you shut your eyes and bow your heads all over this room today. I want us just to sit in it as we close our service at 9 59 a.m i want you to sit in the grace of god i want you just to sit there and hear afresh the voice of god sit in a fresh sense of the call of jesus you know how the authors of scripture would explain that you're a jesus follower if you're a jesus follower Because he stood at the door of your tomb and said, come on out, Lazarus, start a new life with me. And something happened. Did you hear what he said? I don't know. But as he said it, the Holy Spirit came and boom, you were risen from the dead. And that's why there's been a change. And that's why no matter how bad the external, how much the problems were, no matter what was going through your mind, no matter what you're experiencing, no matter your brokenness, your sin, your disobedience, your shame, whatever uh, hurdles there were, whatever barriers there were, you could have been a Buddhist, you could have been a Hindu, could have been a religious person. But you were dead. But life came into your life. I can remember 20 years ago when that happened to me. I, I can tell you the exact moment it happened. And I was more surprised than anybody else. And boy, if they knew me, they really would have been shocked. Risen from the dead. Raised up. You know, as you're thinking about that, I want you to imagine what that means. Because Jesus... He died for us. And all of Matthew's gospel will take us on a journey to culminate at the story of Jesus' death for sin on our behalf, which is why Jesus can raise people up in all these stories in the gospel. He can heal people. He can announce the coming of the kingdom of God. He can announce the forgiveness of sins. The way Matthew's written it, man, Jesus has some unique power and authority like he's a king or something because he can do all this stuff. And the whole way through the gospel, the crowds, everybody is saying, where does he get this? Even the people against Jesus are saying, I know where he gets it. He's a sorcerer. He's evil. He's got a demon. And Matthew leads you to the conclusion, no, he can do it because when he dies on the cross, he dies as Isaiah's chapter 53 sacrificial lamb that takes away sin and death and brokenness. Jesus dies a torturous, murderous, horrendous death on the cross and he's buried in the tomb. Tragic martyrdom, terrible murder. Murder. Unjust, violent, the powers of religion and the powers of empire all combined to torture him to death and put him in that too. But of course, from his own words, Jesus always predicted that that would be happen. And Matthew chronicles the story of Jesus predicting it was happening and using every healing, every miracle, every follow me statement, every raised up person as a signpost that points towards the great culminating work of Jesus. His sacrificial death on our behalf, not a murder, not an unjust death. A miraculous, eternal sacrifice that affects all of history. And so every time Jesus heals someone and raises them up, he says, I do it on the basis of the fact that I ultimately will carry their sin and their pain and their shame and their death. I will carry it on the cross and I will bury it with me in the tomb. And this is what's amazing about the gospel message. That on the third day, Matthew has it that even the women who's, who were like, you know, just they were not considered to be reputable sources in the ancient world. And Matthew says, this is so crazy. I have to give it to you straight. Even the women saw him first. And the followers of Jesus. then hundreds of people encountered him. Even the Romans had to cook up a fabricated tale that there are no ancient sources to replicate. Just... Rumor mill of the Roman Empire or his followers came and took him away. But person after person after person throughout the pages of the rest of the New Testament and the book of Acts and then throughout the first centuries of the Christian church. And for 2000 years on, people have been encountering that that Jesus that died on a cross and was buried in a tomb, walked out of that tomb. And now he raised me up and I didn't have to experience a death and I didn't have to be buried in a tomb. My whole life was a tomb, but I can be called by Jesus out of my tomb and live a new life. And church history and mission has been predicated on the backs for the last 2,000 years of the testimony of people who say, I was dead, but now I'm alive. And every time Christians gather, every time God's word is declared, every time God's word is understood, every time God's word is thought on or meditated on, the Holy Spirit comes into Christian gatherings, into individual hearts and minds into your coffee table space, your car, your bedroom, the cafe, between your two iPod, earpod things. The presence of God comes and renews the same call that has always been happening. Envelops a person in a sense where God's word is speaking light into the darkness once again a Genesis 1 moment. That's why it's sacred to coming to God's word. It's why we gather every week And our whole lives, we could hear a sermon on every verse for hours and hours and hours at a time. But we'd never replicate each individual encounter where the Holy Spirit comes and says, now I'm going to call people. And today, while we've been talking, there's people in this room. And whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, he's been calling you to come out of stuff. He's been raising you up out of stuff oh God, I've been paralysed in that area of my life. Now God's word has been going forth and it's like the Holy Spirit has descended in this place as we've talked and worshipped and prayed today. And what is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to raise you up, my child. I'm going to raise you up, my son. I'm going to raise you up, my daughter. There's people in this room today and you're, you're not what you'd call a Christian not a follower of Jesus, the Bible teaches us very clearly that every single one of us will be faced with a time in life where we must say yes to the gospel message. And the way that happens is that we will be in a moment very similar to this where God's word has gone out and now the Holy Spirit is moving upon our lives and convincing us teaching us in our hearts, calling us in our minds. That's me. I need to be like Matthew. I need to get up. I need to follow. I need to say yes. And our hearts will begin to know the tug of heaven as the Holy Spirit comes and says, that's you. That's you, my son, my daughter. And in this moment right now, if we all put up our spiritual antenna, I know in a room like this, that for the first time ever, or for the first time in a long time, God's Holy Spirit is here calling people like he called Matthew that day and saying, come on, enter a new life. Enter a new life with me. Enter a new life as a follower of mine. Become a follower of mine. Let some new life come into you today. Become someone who walks with Jesus. Become someone made spiritually alive. Let this electricity of God's word flow into your soul and bring life to you. Well, here's a question every man woman and child under the sound of my voice in this moment do you remember a time where you drew a line in the sand of your life and said god of the universe no matter where i've been going to no matter where i've been coming from today my answer is yes to the gospel and i turn to you and i'm crossing over that line and i'm now going to say yes to the gospel message and become a follower of yours and i know in a room like this today jesus is drawing people right now by his love and his warmth and his grace and he's saying to people's hearts and minds that's you my son my daughter that's you for the first time ever or maybe you did it once, but you haven't been following Jesus. You're, you're sort of like, did a, did a, I'm going to go back to my booth and sit down again type thing. And today Jesus is here with a fresh call for some of his children saying, come on, once again, say yes to the gospel message. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for everybody. But before I do that, I want to pray for two groups. The first group are those in this room and say, Ben, that's me. I need to say yes to the gospel message for the first time ever the second group is those who say pastor ben i've done it before but i need to renew my faith today and say yes again to becoming a follower of jesus and he's here and he's saying who in this place wants to say yes to the message well here's what i'm going to do i'm going to leave you in your seat but so that i know who i'm praying for i want you to shoot one hand symbolically up to heaven right now as a way of saying god that's me i'm saying yes right now and in this room i know there's people that the holy spirit is drawing and i don't want you to miss your moment so in just a moment i'm going to pray If you want to be included in my prayer, why don't you just shoot your hand up in the air right now and say, yep, Ben, that's me, just so I can see it. Good on you, my friend. Good on you. Awesome. Who else in this room? Hand up in the air. Yep, thank you. Thank you. Going to give you a moment. Who else in this room? Hand up in the air. Pastor Ben, I need to say yes. The first time ever. Or the first time in too long, I'm going to say yes to being a follower of Jesus. God is calling me. Jesus is raising me today. Father, I thank you that you're moving in people's lives in this room today. I thank you, Father, that you're raising people up today and walking them into a new future. In the name of Jesus Christ. God bless you, my friends, with your hands up. Why don't you go ahead and put your hand on your heart. Put your hand on your heart if your hand's up in the air this morning. It's just symbolic saying, hey, I'm starting a new journey today. I'm starting a new journey. Come on, become a follower of Jesus. Be a follower of His. I speak it over you today in Jesus' name. Fresh vision for living. Fresh energy for life. For you to turn around from where you were going. And now go with God, becoming a follower of Jesus. God bless you. God bless you. Okay, for the rest of our family in this place today, I want you to go ahead and stand up on your feet. But wait, as you do it, this is not just any type of standing. This is saying, in a fresh way, Jesus, I'm also being raised up today, like that crippled was, and like Matthew was, like Jesus was, like the Ephesians were. When I stand on my feet this morning, I'm doing so as someone standing in the strength of God, standing in the power of God. standing. The person that stands up is not the person that walked into this room today. The life I go back to is not the life that followed me in today, no matter whether you've been following Jesus for a thousand years or whether you've just been following him for the last five minutes. When you stand up on your feet today, you're standing up for a new future, a new place in the power of God, a new place in the economy of God, a new place in the revelation of God. You're walking into a new future. It's only a symbolic act and we don't do it much in our church, but maybe we should do it more. That when you stand up on your feet today, you say, God, I'm standing up walking with you into a different future no matter what happened at 9.01 this morning. Stand on your feet. Are you ready? One, two three. Come on, stand up in Jesus' name all over this place. Why don't you lift your hands to heaven for just a moment. Father, I thank you. I thank you today for the breakthrough power of your Holy Spirit, taking your word and bringing it alive in our hearts. People arising in their own sense of challenge, arising in their own sense of shame, arising in their own sense of anxiety, arising in their own sense of brokenness, arising out of the fog and the mist of the darkness that sometimes feels like it encircles us, but today arising in the authority and power of Jesus who stands and calls us forward god bless your people be with them right now holy spirit move in every heart move in every mind move in every life today to bring a fresh authority a fresh hope a fresh walk a fresh sense of faith in the name of jesus christ god bless your people resurrection power over your life today my brother my sister my friend freshness fresh energy for the challenge that you've been facing you didn't have it when you woke up today maybe but boy you can have it now just let your soul breathe it in thank you jesus we stand in your word lord i pray for our church that we would be people that share the gospel in waves that bring life to others not give rules to others that we would be those who would call people higher that we would speak life-transforming, healing words over others. Use us, send us in Jesus' name. And everybody says, come on, let's give God a hand clap of praise in this house this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Well, God bless you, family. Why don't we sing one song Then you can take someone outside for a cuppa and all that sort of jazz. God bless you. Thank you for joining us in the podcast. For more information about Desert Life Church, go to desertlifechurch.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day and remember, you belong here.